Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, it's part three of our deep delve into H.P. Lovecraft's classic tale, The Shadow Over Innsmouth. But before we get into all that deep stuff, what is going on? You two recently went to the Innsmouth Literary Festival. Indeed, thankfully nowhere near Innsmouth, in uh, the wonderful <laughs> landlocked and as, almost as far from the coast as you can get, Bedford. Yes, here in the UK, on 30th of September 2023. Yeah, so what was it like? Expensive. I got too many books. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was down to your own uh, choice, Matt. I mean, the actual event wasn't, I don't, I don't think, too expensive. But, but it was like, I would say, a mini Necronomicon, really, wouldn't you, Matt? Yeah, very much that kind of style. Let's say you had a big trade hall, lots of folks in there with far too many tempting goods. <laughs> then you had a neighbouring conference room with a big stage and then a game hall immediately off that. Yes, nice and cosy. Thanks to Steph for organising the gaming. And there were film screenings. Chris Lackey and Greg Johnson were there. Uh, there were panels about weird fiction. There were readings in the evening at the pub. On the after event, there was some improvised poetry, which is actually really good. <laughs> he took suggestions from the audience and incorporated them into uh, strangely themed poetry. And the evening rounded off with a set from Arkham Witch, a Lovecraftian-themed band. Mm. Mm. Yeah, oh, that sounds grand. By the way, I just really wanted to apologise to anyone who was hoping to meet me there. I know a few people had contacted me online. And I, I think at this stage I can't see myself attending any in-person conventions for the foreseeable future. In the run-up to this, I realised just the, the thought of going out and interacting with people in person and and just in general leaving the house in the moment fills me with so much anxiety that I can't do it and I'm, I'm sorry if that's sort of cutting me off from people but I, it's something I'm I'm just finding very difficult to deal with at the moment. Yeah and we met Heather Poirier there she was over from the States incredibly. Yeah yeah she'd come over she was making a week of it she was going to go see a couple of shows down in London and just before she flew back on Saturday morning, so Friday night, she managed to come over to our place and join me, Tiff, and a couple of others for a game. Oh, nice. Awesome. Yeah. No, it's really good to meet her and uh, chat to her about her own work and so on. And I'll, I'm sure there'll be more to say about that in the future. Yeah, well, in fact, possibly in this run of episodes, because she did help me with some of the research, right? Hmm. And Paul, I hear there's... Uh, more work on your horizons as well recently. Yeah, I've gone from being freelance to being a, a Chaosium employee now. So I'm an associate editor with Chaosium, working on various projects, mostly Call of Cthulhu based. And uh, yeah, it's nice to be a part of the team. Fantastic. Okay, the next bit I've noted down, hello to man from pub. So <laughs> I was in the pub last night in the new inn, my local, and... I mean, the pub is really small. 
imagine your own living room it's a couple of times the size of that and there's a mm. band at one end playing really loud and we did ask if we could open a window but they said no because they'd get complaints <laughs> from the noise <laughs> so it was really hot in there and me and Kath have been up the front and then we sort of headed back to sit at the back of the pub and a fella came up to me and said something I didn't really catch what he said and then I was like oh yeah and then I heard him say, the good friends of Jackson Elias. <laughs> and I was like, what? And I was just dumbfounded that he was a fan of the show and he wanted to say hello. Were you wearing a T-shirt that identified you as something or did he just recognise your face? I guess he just recognised my face because he wouldn't have heard me. I'm pretty sure of that because it, it was hard to hear anything in there. It was really loud. Yeah, so I apologised to you gentleman that I met in the pub I was so gobsmacked that I didn't really know what to say it was like so uh surprising yeah so hello and hope to see you again in the new inn one evening you know hopefully be more engaging <laughs> next time and now on to our main topic the shadow over Innsmouth part three Following last episode's sightseeing, we're almost ready to meet Zadok Allen and learn the true history of Innsmouth. A vast year, there's going to be an information dump ahead. Oh, it's, it's a good one though, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> it's brilliant. The sight of Zadok Allen is enough to distract Robert Olmsted from his observations of architecture. This being a Lovecraft story, that may be the highest form of flattery. Olmsted hurries towards the square. I had been assured that the old man could do nothing but hint at wild, disjointed and incredible legends. And I had been warned that the natives made it unsafe to be seen talking to him. Yet the thought of this aged witness to the town's decay, with memories going back to the early days of ships and factories, was a lure that no amount of reason could make me resist. After all, the strangest and maddest of myths are often merely symbols or allegories based upon truth. And old Zadok must have seen everything which went on around Innsmouth for the last 90 years. Olmsted decides the safest course of action will be to procure some bootleg whiskey. Hey, because booze and dynamite, they're the two investigators' best friends. Then wait for Alan to wander out of sight of the fireman. Following the grocery clerk's instructions, Olmsted buys some bootleg booze from a dingy variety store where he is surprised by the civility of the dirty-looking fellow who sells it to him. Olmsted supposes that this salesman is used to dealing with truckmen and gold buyers passing through town. I'm not sure I'd ever encountered that word truckman before. Yeah, truckers is normally the kind of the variety I'd be more familiar with, but then I imagine going back to when Lovecraft was writing... Mass haulage by road probably is only starting mm. to really become more of a thing by that point because mm. you haven't got much by way of like articulated lorries or heavy goods vehicles at that point. Spotting the tall, lean, tattered form of Zadok Allen wandering past, Olmsted waves the bottle of whiskey enticingly and waits for the old man to shuffle after him. Olmsted heads toward the abandoned wharf. Allen soon catches up and Olmsted offers him the bottle. I just love that image of Olmsted just waving this bottle around like a dog treat, waiting for, mm. for Alan to trot after him. It's really 
quite horribly degrading. Come here, Alki. Come on, come on, boy. Well, I think Zadok is a very sad character in this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it's just the way Lovecraft presents it is really dehumanising. Hmm. The two men find some moss-covered stones to sit on, sheltered from view by a ruined warehouse. While this spot offers a view of the sea, Omsed finds the air of death and desertion ghoulish, and the smell of fish almost insufferable. This stench does not deter Olmsted from either conversation or his lunch. You can tell that something's weird about him already if it doesn't put him off his food. As he eats, he doles out the booze to Alan, hoping to loosen the old man's tongue without rendering him insensible. It's getting good idea, get the man plastered and then go slurry the way through the info dump. Not a good plan. Even so, Alan talks only of current events, and not the dark history of Innsmouth that Olmsted craves. After two hours of such chatter, Olmsted despairs of learning much before he has to leave for his bus. Yeah, it really struck me. It's like two hours before his tongue starts to loosen and he starts to say things that are pertinent to uh, Olmsted's interests. It takes more almost a degree of realism, though, because thinking if this was in a game context, if you wanted to go up to an NPC and learn all this juicy stuff, you wouldn't exactly expect them to just suddenly go, oh, right, my info dumps capability has been activated. I must tell everything. It, It just felt a more natural conversation, a more natural interaction between these two strangers. Yeah, it feels very convincing. Luckily, the conversation takes a turn when Alan's gaze chances upon Devil Reef protruding from the waves. After some weak curses, the old man starts to recount the history Olmsted had been waiting for, talking about how Obed Marsh found more than was good for him in the South Sea Islands. Innsmouth was in a bad way back in those days. Trade and industry had fallen off, and many of the menfolk had been killed while privateering in the War of 1812. Only Marsh's trading ships were still profitable. I was quite taken by that mention of privateering in the War of 1812. I didn't Mm. realise that privateering was like a part of that war, but I don't really know much about the War of 1812. It's a bit of American history that I don't think is really taught much outside America. Now, when we started doing this story, one of the things I was excited about was getting Matt to revisit <laughs> his portrayal. I mean, it's a different character, but, you know, you did such a good job with what's Old Man Waitley in the Dunwich Horror Mat <laughs> via, like, Dorset and the Wurzels or Somerset. It's only right that you, you read this, at least this first quote from uh, our old friend Zadok Allen after having imbibed about a, a pint of whiskey. I've imbibed a pot of tea this morning, so hopefully that will get me in the right mindset for this. So hopefully I'm going to do it justice and not sound too much like uh, Old Man Waitley, but I'll give it a go. We should point out for the listeners that it's written in a kind of a dialect speech. (laughs) Oh, isn't it just? But most of it is, I don't think, as pronouncedly as it is in the Dunwich Horror. There there were some bits in the Dunwich Horror where I was thinking, what does he even mean there? Whereas in these ones, it seemed to flow off the page to me at least more easily but do bear in mind matt before you start on this that zadok allen is a bootleg whiskey drinker not a cider drinker <laughs> well i can't have either these days so i'm kind of losing the memory of what that felt like oh well here it goes never was nobody like captain Obed. old limo satan 
Hey, hey, I can mind him a telling about fur and parts and calling all the stupid folk for going to Christian meeting and bearing and their burdens and making all loudly. Say they ought to get better gods like some of the folks in Inges. God and none bring them good fishing and return for their sacrifices and none really answer folks' prayers. It is like Zadok Allen was in the room with us. <laughs> it is. Fantastic. He's killing my throat yeah. as well. Oh. <laughs> already there's a lot to unpack in there you know there's a lot about religion in this one oh, God, i think yeah, yeah. about the decline of religion in innsmouth we've seen a lot of that already and here obed marsh is sort of berating people for following the christian mm. faith and how they should find some better gods i think this is something that is a really interesting aspect of the Cthulhu mythos, for me at least, and a really interesting aspect of Call of Cthulhu, which is this approach to religion as being transactional and based on truth and not a matter of faith, that rather than going to church and, and praying because you're hoping for salvation or because you're moved by religious fervor, you're doing it because you're getting tangible benefits that your gods are making themselves known to you. And that maybe in some cults you've seen them and interacted with them. Maybe here in this case, you're doing it because you're getting golden fish out of the deal. But whatever it is, it turns religion into something that is really quite different from our modern conception of religion, well, at least particularly Abrahamic religions. And it becomes, yeah, this, as I said, transactional thing, which is actually quite disturbing as this story goes on. Marsh's first mate, Matt Elliott, was against such things, however. He told of an island east of Otaheite, or Tahiti as we know it, covered with stone carvings like those on Easter Island. There was a smaller island there with carvings of awful monsters and ruins worn away as if by the sea. Yeah, we discover later that this is another classic Lovecraftian island that has risen up from the seabed. Hmm. How many stories is that now when Lovecraft's done that? There's this, there's The Call of Cthulhu, there's Dagon, yeah. there is Out of the Eons. Does it happen in the temple as well? The temple's under uh, the seabed because right. it's the U-boat that's sunk to the seabed. But it's this sort of common theme, isn't it, even, mm. even in that? It's, yeah, it's very much this idea of a, yeah, like you say, this temple or, or city rising up out of the sea. It is an interesting theme. And Lovecraft does seem to, um, even though he didn't necessarily have an interest in it, he does seem to have been familiar with theosophy. And I guess that this was a big part of theosophy, not the rising of these islands, but the fact that there were these great civilizations like Atlantis and Mu that had sunk below the waves and were down mm. there. And it must have been part of the popular consciousness at the time Lovecraft was writing in a way that it really isn't today. So maybe that's why it stands out more. Mm. The natives of this island had all the fish they could catch, way more than neighbouring islands had. They wore gold jewellery, adorned with images of the same fish-like, frog-like monsters as could be seen on the stone carvings. There was also a suspicious lack of old folk. Marsh was able to read the locals like a book and wormed the truth out of the local chief. 
Alan comments that Olmsted has them sharp reading eyes, like Obed had. It seems the locals were sacrificing heaps of their young men and maidens to make some kind of gold things that lived under the sea and getting all kinds of favour in return. They met the things on the islet with the queer ruins, and it seems them awful pictures of frogfish monsters were supposed to be the pictures of those things. Maybe that was kind of old critters as got them all the mermaid stories and such started. They had all kinds of cities on the sea bottom, and this island was heave up from there. Seems there was some of those things alive on the stone's buildings when the island come up suddenly to the surface. He almost seems coherent there. Yeah. Maybe sobering up a bit. Yeah. Well, wait, wait. Alan says that it isn't for him to describe what the monsters did to the sacrificial victims. As well as people, the islanders offered carvings as sacrifices to the creatures. These sacrifices were made every year, at May Eve and Halloween. In return, the islanders received gold and fish. Yeah, I was struck by that mention of the sacrifices being made every year at May Eve and Halloween, because obviously those are important dates in certain traditions in Europe. But the fact that... Lovecraft is presenting these these times of year, these particular dates, as having universal significance mm. within the mythos, regardless of the human cultures surrounding them, is, I, I think, at least notable. Mm. Yeah. It's not like they even correspond to, I mean, the, God, the equinoxes, they're about a month before Halloween and, say, a month before May Eve, respectively. Mm. My knowledge of astronomy isn't that great, but there might, <laughs> maybe there's something else that happens around that time, I'm... I think these dates just sort of tie into um, significant dates in sort of pagan history and so on. So it, it just kind of adds a layer of, I don't know about believability, but adds an, another layer to the story, if you will, that is sort of tied to something that the readers might already know about. Mm -hmm. Over time, the creatures came up from the sea and began to live amongst the islanders. The islanders tried to keep the secret from neighbouring communities, but the creatures themselves didn't care. They were confident that they could wipe out anyone who opposed them, as long as their enemies weren't protected by certain signs used by the lost old ones. The islanders were reluctant to mate with the toad-looking fishes, but it turned out that their children appeared human, at least initially. Over time, however, they would turn into fish things and retreat to the water, where they would never die except through violence. I love the understatement of the islanders being reluctant to mate with these creatures. I know people can get fairly experimental, but I think it would probably take a special kind of person to look at a deep one and sort of think, ooh, yeah. Hentilicious. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I just wonder about that in, in light of the discussion of racism in the story. Because there's this thing about miscegenation being mm. a bad thing. But is what you're saying that people wouldn't want to mate with these things? I mean, that is exactly would have been Lovecraft's opinion of breeding with among human races. 
This is one of the complex things with talking about the shadow of Rinsmith, which is there are layers of meaning. I'm talking very much about the surface reading here, taking it at its literal word, not as Lovecraft's allegory, as, as his railing against what he saw as being the horrors of race mixing. But I'm thinking more in terms of if you saw this thing come up from the sea that looked like a bipedal frog with flapping gills and huge bolting eyes... I don't know about you, but my first thought wouldn't be, oh, I want to fuck that. Without seeing it, it's kind of hard to know, but <laughs> I'm going to figure that's... I would probably be on the same page as you, I'm figuring, but... Uh, Paul, this is a judgment-free zone, no kink shame here. If you're into it, you're into it, and that's fine. Well, if we go back to the, the myths of, you know, he's already referred to the myths of mermaids, which yeah. were exactly that, right? They seduced fishermen and seafarers to their watery grave, perhaps, but they seduced them. But then again, we are mostly told that the Deep Ones are horrific to look at. So, As we'll see later in the story, Lovecraft goes to great lengths to tell us just how horrific they are. But then, you know, if they dress right and they put their face on and are up for going out on a Saturday night, you know, who's to say? And maybe they all have sparkling personalities. Uh, maybe. We get a line here about so a man had often be a talking to his own five times great grandfather who had left the dry land a couple of hundred years or so before. And I just thought that was a a kind of really appealing image that you could be talking to somebody, your ancestor perhaps, but whether it's your ancestor or not, you can be talking to somebody who was in human society 200 years ago. I mean, how would that be? That's That's amazing. Yeah, the, the kind of continuity that would give a culture in terms of being able to talk mm. to people who were there when formative decisions about your society were made and who could tell you how things used to be firsthand. Yeah, that that would be amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Because now what would we be? We'd be talking about somebody that was alive in uh, 1823. Like, say, Doc Allen. Well, indeed, as a small kid, perhaps, but I'm not even sure he was born then, but yeah. No, he wasn't. No, he's, he's slightly, slightly younger than that. Some of the hybrids looked more human than others. The less human ones would change earlier, while some others might remain on land into their 70s. Even those who went down into the ocean would come back for visits. The islanders soon adapted to this new way of life. And despite what I was saying earlier about the repellent nature of the Deep Ones, I can see that from, um, from an evolutionary and a biological point of view, and also, from, as you said there, from, Paul, from a cultural point of view, there would be a lot of appeal to being a parent to children who were effectively immortal. You're bringing someone or something into the world that will be there potentially forever. Mm. The chief of the islanders taught Obed Marsh certain rites and incantations relating to these sea things. He also gave Marsh a lead thingamajig, as Alan puts it, that could call these fish things up to shore if it were dropped into the water accompanied by the right prayers. This would work in any one of the many places apparently around the world where these creatures live below the surface. 
Mm. And yeah, I mean, that's the first indication we get that this isn't just a localised thing, that these deep ones are everywhere. I like how in, in the story it's this lead thingamajig, whereas in the, uh, the Stuart Gordon Dagon adaptation, it's sort of portrayed as this gold pyramid that they throw into the, mm. into the ocean. I much prefer a gold pyramid rather than a lead thingy. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of surprising that he went with lead here, considering how everything else they do involves gold. Hmm. Maybe there's something in his mind about connecting the likes of the, uh, was it the Sorcerer's Stone to, uh, to kind of change lead into gold? You mean the Philosopher's Stone? That Philosopher's Stone, that's it. No, not Sorcerer's Stone. Also more tempting to throw a bit of lead into the ocean than it is to throw a bit of gold in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I, I guess he might also have had in mind um, sinkers for fishing. Mm -hmm. Sounding lines or whatever, yeah. And we shall be back shortly with more drunken ramblings. Did you know this show is edited? But I can say fuck, right? Uh, carry on. Anyway... If you want to hear the hosts mess up and waffle on even more, just chip in a dollar a show at patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias, where all backers gain access to uncut versions of the show. My name is Paul Fricker. My name is Mike Mason. And together, Mike and I have written and recorded a new show where you can hear chilling tales of horror. Join us, won't you, at eldritchstories.com. And remember, keep it eldritch. And now we rejoin Robert Olmsted and Zadok Allen as they enjoy a nice drink by the seaside. Marsh began trading for the gold jewellery. He melted most of it down in his new refinery, but townsfolk began to wear some pieces. This trade hit a dead end, however, when people from neighbouring islands wiped out Marsh's trading partners, even destroying the carvings. Damn iconoclasts! <laughs> the attackers left little stones scattered around, carved with something resembling a swastika, which Marsh took to be the signs of these old ones. Yeah, that mentioned the swastika. Now, mm. at the time Lovecraft was writing this, I mean, the Nazis had, they hadn't quite risen to power in Germany, but they were a force in Germany, and they had adopted the use of the swastika, but mm. it didn't necessarily have the same meaning in people's minds as it does now, because, as I'm sure no. our listeners already know, I mean, the swastika is an ancient symbol that far predates the Nazis. In different forms, it's been used in Buddhism and Hinduism, and... Throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, it was used quite uh, freely in the US, in Canada, in Europe, as a sort of general good luck symbol. You had lots of buildings and items that were decorated with swastikas. Yeah, you had these two children's sports teams, uh, I think hockey teams in Canada at the time, the, the Fernie Swastikas and the Windsor Swastikas. And you can find pages for them on uh, Wikipedia, which uh, shows them sitting there in these, these uniforms, just these kids lining up smiling mm. in their, their swastika jerseys. And it was 
a perfectly, well, not just innocent symbol, but a very positive symbol at the time Lovecraft was writing about it. So, you know, seeing that that mention of it now hits very differently than Lovecraft's intent when he was writing this, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And also, I think I owe a little apology here to August Derleth. Because I remember when we were talking about one of his stories, I can't remember which episode it was, but we mentioned, I think it was The Witch's Hollow, and there's a mention in there of a character combating some mythos witch-type thing by going around with this bag of these little stones with elder sides on them, scattering them like confetti. And I remember saying at the time that I thought that seemed rather silly. Here's Lovecraft doing exactly the same thing in mm. The Shadow of Rinsmith. I'd completely forgotten about it, and Derleth obviously read this bit, lifted it, and took it into the Witch's Hollow. And I'd generally forgotten that at any point in Lovecraft you had these physical elder signs, these stones with these symbols on them that did provide protection. I genuinely thought that was an invention of Derleth because my mind had closed over this bit. But no, no, there it is. Going back to the news item at the beginning, that's one of the books I picked up at the Interview Literary Festival. I picked up from 1945, Derleth's HPL, a memoir. Oh, wow. Oh, really? I didn't see that. Yeah. Nice thin book as well, so it's uh, not too long. Oh, interesting. For a book from 1945, it's in particularly good condition. So very happy with that one. Wow, that's good. The end of this trade once again plunged Innsmouth into hard times. Marsh cursed the locals for being dull sheep and praying to a Christian heaven. And he told them there were other gods who they could pray to, who would bring them fish and gold. Alan lapses into a silent reverie at this stage, and Olmsted lets him finish the bottle. While Olmsted is profoundly interested in Alan's tale, taking it to be a form of allegory, he still feels a twinge of terror. Eventually, Alan continues. He finishes the bottle. It's referred to as a quart bottle, and I'm not sure if that means a quarter-sized bottle or a bottle that contains a quart, i.e. like two pints, which is about a litre. I take it to be the latter. I mean, yeah. quart is a common measurement in the US. We don't use it over here, but yeah, yeah, it's two pints. So that is a lot of whiskey. I mean, that's that's like drinking a litre bottle of whiskey. He does kind of marvel in the story at Zadok's capacity for, for drinking. So, uh, you know, I think it is meant to be a lot. I certainly remember from when my mother was a recovering alcoholic, but a drug and alcohol counsellor, and she did a a lot of studying about the effects of alcohol, both psychologically and physiologically as part of her training for that. And I do remember her talking about, and maybe people out there with much better knowledge of this can correct me, but I remember her talking about how there is this cycle that you go through with alcohol dependency where you develop this increasing tolerance and increasing tolerance and increasing tolerance to alcohol to the point where it takes really quite a lot to get you drunk, even though it's still harming your body incredibly. But then you get to a sort of tipping point where it damages your liver so much that your tolerance just collapses again and you've hardly got any ability to, to process alcohol. It just strikes me as interesting that Alan's got to the age of 90 and hasn't hit this tipping point yet. 
Definitely, Alan puts my efforts with whiskey to shame. The best I ever managed was three quarters of a bottle of Jura in three minutes. Yes, I was there for that. It wasn't pretty. No, <laughs> the next day weren't pretty either. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you spend the entire night effectively lying face down in the bathroom, your head in the toilet, with Tiff there trying to make sure that you you didn't drown. That's it, pulling my hair out of my face, yeah. <laughs> Praying Trazathoth on the great white telephone. <laughs> <laughs> the guy never answers my drunk calls, damn it. Yeah, damn it. <laughs> anyway, such things are long behind me now. My body cannot cope with it. Matt Elliott, the first mate, tried to rally the townsfolk against this blasphemy, but they ran the local clergyman out of town. Damn right for them. Blast for me, blast for you, blast for everybody. <laughs> Alan was only a child, but he remembers what he saw and heard. Dagod and Astareth, Belial and Beelzebub, Golden Calf and the Idols of Canaan, and the Philistines, Babylonish abominations, men, many, many tekel, a, a, a parson. Yeah, I didn't understand what that last part was until I saw the bit in Klinger's book. I take it you saw this as well, Paul, mm. where he explains what that last little saying or the phrase means, which comes from the Bible, but apparently has no literal significance. I mean, it's the name of different types of coins, and Klinger says that it's essentially the equivalent of saying nickel, nickel, dime, and some pennies. Apparently, in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, it's explained that this phrase is a portent of the doom and division of the kingdom of uh, King Belshazzar. Gesundheit. Sensing Olmsted's incredulity... Alan asks him to explain why Marsh and about 20 others would row out to Devil Reef in the dead of night and chant loudly enough to be heard from shore while dropping things in the water. And why did the new church parsons, former sailors, wear strange new robes and gold jewellery? I think you answered this earlier when you were saying about uh, the local pub wouldn't have the window open to avoid nice noise complaints. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But this is the kind of thing that Lovecraft does over and over again in his stories, and I think he does it fairly well, which is that he makes stuff incredibly obvious without actually saying it directly. He's drawn the exact parallels here between what's going on in Innsmouth and what was going on in that South Sea Island, but he never has the characters effectively say to the reader, oh, yeah, this is what's going mm. on. He just spells it out in such a way that you can't miss it. It's not subtle. It's a very direct form of storytelling. But at the same time, it stops just short of being insultingly expositional. Mm. It's actually, I think, quite a good balance. The young Alan used a spyglass from the cupola of his house one night and saw the reef bristling with shapes that weren't human. Shortly after, young men began disappearing from around town. Meanwhile, the gold refinery started operating again and Marsh's daughters were seen wearing strange golden trinkets. One thing that stood out to me here, and I don't know if there's any significance, is that when... Alan was talking about what happened in the original South Sea Island community. It was that young men and women were being sacrificed, but here in Innsmouth it seems to be solely the young men who are being sacrificed. 
Hmm. I don't know if that's because of some qualms on the part of the residents of Innsmouth about sacrificing women or... Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. The harbour began to fill with more fish than the locals could catch. Fishermen from Newburyport tried to join in, but their boats were mysteriously lost. Hmm. And the Masonic Hall became the esoteric order of Dagon. Hooray. I've been to Masonic Halls and lovely places. <laughs> okay. Have you been to an esoteric order of Dagon? No, they, they always turn me away at the door. Hmm. Well, that's probably good, good for you. They say my eyes are too close together. Yeah, your, your eyes are too small, Matt. They won't let you in. Yeah. Things went on this way for a while until Selectman Maori and some of the locals stood up against Marsh and had him arrested. Then, a couple of weeks later, the sea things grew tired of the interruption to the sacrifices. That awful night, I seed them. I was up in the kapoa, hordes of them, swarms of them all over the reef and swimming up the harbour into the Minuxet. God, what happened in the streets of Innsmouth that night? They rattled outdoor, but Pa wouldn't open. He then clumb about the kitchen, wondering in his musket to find Selectman Maori and see what he could do. Mounds are dead and they're dying. Shots and screams, shouting Old Square and Town Square and New Church Green. Jail throw open, proclamation treason, Called it to the plague when folks come in and found half our people missing. Nobody left but them as a join with Obed and them things or as keep them quiet. Never heard of my power no more. And that's really sad, I think, that, that bit where he says, you know, he's, he's a young kid, well, a, a young teen perhaps, looking out the, the top of his house window with a telescope down at all this horror and his father goes out you know, with a gun and he never sees his father again. Yeah, that really is quite a nightmarish little sequence there. Mm, it is. I think particularly because it's portrayed from this old alcoholic in his 90s, but he's remembering back to you know himself as a little child. Even just that little snippet in the middle where it's mounds of the dead and dying, they're mm. just seeing all these piles of horror scattered throughout the streets where they're just dumping bodies. Yeah. Everything was cleaned up by morning, except for traces. Obed Marsh took control of the town, telling people that the others would be visiting, and certain houses would have to entertain guests. The Sea Things now wanted to breed with the people of Innsmouth, as they had with the Islanders. Marsh told the townsfolk they would need to keep this secret from outsiders and swear the three oaths of Dagon. He warned them that there are millions of these creatures in the sea and they would spare the people of Innsmouth if they followed these new ways. Alan was 15 when all this happened, but he refused to take the third oath of Dagon. Other townsfolk killed themselves or went missing. The few who tried to get word out to neighbouring communities were considered insane by those they told. Which is a fair reaction, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think if you... Certainly at this time in the 19th century, if you went around to a neighbouring community and tried telling the story, yeah, they'd laugh you off. By the way, with all this stuff with the Oaths of Dagon, if people haven't already heard it, we did do an episode on Dagon as part of our Mythos Deities series, where we speculate a little bit about the Oaths of Dagon. If that aspect of the story intrigues you, then check it out, and I'll try to remember to put a link in the show notes. 
17 years later, the children born of these first unions are growing up. But Alan, at this stage, has still never seen a full-blooded creature. When a Union recruiter came to town, Alan went off to fight in the Civil War, and he still wishes that he had never returned. Innsmouth was falling into ruin again, with businesses going under and the harbours silting up. More and more houses boarded up their windows. Obed Marsh himself took a second wife in 1846, one who no one ever saw, and had three children with her. One married an unsuspecting man from Arkham. Barnabas Marsh, a grandchild of Obed, now runs the refinery, but he too is beginning to change. Obed himself died in 1878. Yeah, this thing about one of the daughters marrying an unsuspecting man from Arkham, that does, for a start, put a little bit of foreshadowing in here for what we'll find out at the end of the story, but also perhaps ties in with stories like The Thing on the Doorstep, where we see that the Innsmouth look in this bloodline isn't just isolated to Innsmouth, that there are people of Innsmouth heritage and Deep One heritage who are scattered throughout New England now. Alan grows shriller, as if trying to whip up his own courage. How do you like to be living in a town like this, with everything a rotting and a dying and a boarded up monsters crawling and a bleating and barking and hopping around black cellars and attics where you turn? Hey! How do you like to be here in a howling night after night with the churches and order a day gone hall and, and know what I'm doing and a part howling? How do you like to be here what comes out that awful reef of Maeve and Halamus? Hey! Think the old man's crazy, eh? Well, sir, let me tell you, ain't the worst. The real horror, Alan says, is not what the fish devils have done, but what they are going to do. They've been bringing up things from the deep. The houses north of the river are full of the creatures, and what they have brought to shore. I say when they get ready, ever hear tell them a shot off? Hey, do you not hear me? I tell you I know what them things be. I seen them one night when they... E, e, Ah, Alan shrieks this last part, eyes bulging from his head, his face a mask worthy of Greek tragedy. He is staring out to sea, but Olmsted can see nothing there beyond maybe an extra set of ripples. The old man whispers one last warning. Get out of here. Get out of here. They've seen us. Get out for your life. Don't wait for nothing. They know now. Run for it, quick, about this town! Alan then screams and runs off in terror. Olmsted looks for him in town, but can find no remaining trace. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this episode. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. 
Yep, thanks to Adrian Carpio. And thank you very much to Daniel Harilla Carlson. Hopefully I've got that right. And thank you very much to Barry Stephen Turton, who has joined us at the Boogieing Zoog level. You gotta love those Boogieing Zoogs. And thanks to Jonas Seidel. Ah, thank you much to the uh, the curious handle here of Neil B two thousand and one. And thank you finally to Magnus Burling. And I think it's this Magnus that I met at the Innsmouth Literary Festival. We did say thanks to uh, another Magnus in the previous episode, but I think that was a different Magnus. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, hi, Magnus. Well, hi to all the Magnuses listening. There is a Magnus who we met a few times at uh, Necronomicon. Yeah, not that one, though. Right. Okay. <laughs> If you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Lies, we would love it if you let people know. Whether this means leaving a review somewhere where reviews can be found, telling people who like such things about it on social media, or perhaps just buying them a bottle of bootleg whiskey and then just rambling incoherently about the podcast for a couple of hours while they're waiting for you to tell them something interesting. Definitely don't get them to drink three quarters of it in three minutes. Not recommended. No, 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 no. We do not condone such behaviour. Well, that wraps it up for another show. You've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com Now I go to rest my vocal cords. Happily, Zadok Allen is out of the story now, so your vocal cords are safe for a while.